Hi everyone, this is your host Enrico Imanalo. The impact of the recent SCOTUS decision on Roe v. Wade is already being felt and seen all around the U.S. and in fact throughout the world. While we don't know yet what the full impact of this decision will be, we know that it will impact women of color, a group that is already vulnerable in many ways disproportionately and on top of the inequities they already face daily. To learn more about this issue, we talked to Dr. Catherine Giscom, founder of Giscom & Associates, who led the groundbreaking study and several subsequent follow-up studies on women of color in corporate management while at Catalyst. In this episode, we discuss the impacts of the decision on Roe v. Wade on women of color. For example, we can expect a 33% higher death rate for pregnancies, meaningful action organizations can be taking to support women, and especially women of color, and opportunities for organizations to really practice what they preach, not only in terms of their DEI programming, but in terms of their political contributions as well. If you like this episode, please like, share, and subscribe. Follow us on social media by heading to our link tree, which has all of our links. That's linktree slash diverity, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash D-I-V-E-R-I-T-Y. Stay tuned. DEI is Taking Action for Women of Color, Present and Future with Dr. Catherine Giscom is coming your way in three, two. Hello and welcome, everybody. With me today is Dr. Catherine Giscom, who led the groundbreaking study on women of color in corporate management while she was at the nonprofit organization Catalyst, as well as designing several follow-up studies over the years, including research on women of color and mentoring and trust between women of color and others within the organization. Her current consulting work involves an examination of equity, equality, and fairness, and what organizations can do to enhance workplace inclusivity through a greater understanding and application of these concepts. To kind of set the scene here, Dr. Giscom, mm -hmm. why is it important for us to be talking about what action organizations can be taking for women of color, not only in 2022, but in the future? Sure. Well, clearly, women of color are a very large part of the, the talent pool out there. And we know that uh, the more that organizations are savvy about using their talent, uh, the more profitable they will be. And importantly, for just the, um, uh, the careers of people within the organization, they really need to be very objective at looking at the talent that exists in their organization. I mean, we know from various studies that um, even still, corporate managers may have some prejudice about who's talented, who looks like they belong in the upper ranks, et cetera. But there's a lot of effort uh, that's been done to really disabuse uh, corporate managers of, of this kind of viewpoint. And I did want to just cite some work that Catalyst has done in terms of getting senior women on boards. So a former colleague, Misha Rosa, has done a lot of work uh, at Catalyst with getting women of color board ready. Mm. And I think it's very important that um, People and corporations know that sponsorship is very important for advancing everybody in the talent pool. And there can be kind of a disconnect in terms of perhaps senior managers not being as comfortable with people who are different from them, but it really pays dividends to, to reach across those barriers and see the talent that exists within the entire workforce. 
And again, sponsorship is a little bit tricky. It's not like mentoring. It's giving uh, your sponsee a lot of tactical and strategic advice about how to increase the power that they have within their roles and what they need to do, what inside information they need to have in order to advance within their corporation and be seen as somebody who is, who is ready for um, membership on a corporate board. Mm, okay, so I'm really looking forward to diving into, into more of that presently. Before mm -hmm. we do that, I am going to pivot to our audience. And uh, mm -hmm. my question for, for those who are tuning in is, what would be one clear indicator that organizations are taking action for women and specifically women of color in meaningful ways? So as we're waiting for uh, people to kind of respond to that question, uh, let's move into the questions that we've developed for today. Mm -hmm. So first up, what I'd like to hear more of from you is how can business organizations better support women of color at all levels within mm -hmm. organizations? And mm -hmm. emphasis on all levels there. Yeah, I think that's an important way of framing that question because we know that uh, typically organizations with their diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts tend to look just at the salaried workers or the managerial workers. But in fact, there certainly is a lot of evidence that people at lower levels in the organization are not having a very positive quality of work. So there was some work done a couple of years ago um, by Berkeley, Berkeley University, about just the, the way that uh, people who work in warehouses who are fulfilling orders, their quality of work life is very, very low. I've heard, yeah. Uh, so organizations need to realize that, for example, when they do future of work conferences, they don't just need to have the senior people being represented, but they need to have lower level people who are actually doing the hands-on work to keep the organization moving. And there's been, I think, a bit of a resistance for some business organizations seeing those lower level workers as obviously, to me at least, completely integral to their efforts at, at being successful. Yeah, so uh, if we're digging a little deeper here, mm -hmm. what more can organizations do? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, for example, they can look more carefully at the working conditions of people within the lower ranks and they can give them, for example, more breaks. Uh, I don't know if you've heard stories about what it's like to work in warehouses fulfilling orders, but the quality of work life is, is quite terrible. And in some fulfillment centers, there have been reports of injuries, of, of people lifting heavy loads, boxes that they really shouldn't have to. So in order to just protect the, the health of their workforce, organizations need to be paying a little bit more attention to those who are lower in the ranks of, of their workforces. And by the way, there are a lot of people of color who are overrepresented in those, in those types of jobs. So that's one of my, my key concerns at this point. Right. And the companion to that is there are certain demographic groups that are overrepresented in the boardroom as well. That's exactly that true. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we started uh, the boardroom in terms of, you know, getting more diverse representation there. And hopefully over time, there will be some effects on the lower levels of the organization. But I think my message to corporate managers is, 
you know, when you're looking at DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion plans, you know, please look carefully at your entire workforce, not just the salaried workers. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's worth repeating here, but those hourly workers are during the pandemic, people have been referring to them as essential workers. And just to be yeah. super clear about this, a lot of those roles are foundational to to the society that we've built and exist in. Yeah, um, that's really true. I will also pivot back just quickly to uh, the audience question. Uh, we've got uh, our, our guest from last time, Christina Smith, chiming in here with uh, a clear indicator would be uh, advocating for women when they're not in the room. But I, I think this also speaks to uh, this, this sort of conversation that we're, we're talking here. And uh, Dr. Enan Rudell, uh, an associate of mine, uh, chimes in just to kind of support that. Uh, and Catherine, I don't know if you'd like to speak to that point about advocating for women when they are not in the room, but it does mm -hmm. seem like an important point. Oh, very much. Certainly, um, in looking at the diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts among corporate organizations, we see sometimes that there is almost an invisibility that happens with with women of color. Like suddenly, uh, you know, people forget about the the contributions that they've made to their departments, to the overall business. And it's kind of interesting that, you know, there is a deep kind of uh, prejudice at work here. Uh, I mean, there's been a lot of work on, on bias within organizations and a lot of academic work, a lot of hands-on work about surfacing that bias and trying to eradicate it. So certainly there, there is a type of invisibility, unfortunately, that happens with women of color. Uh, I mean, stereotypes are very pervasive so a lot of people within corporate organizations simply don't think of women of color as being the type of person that they would expect to see in a high level position, even though they're obviously quite talented and have made many contributions to their business. But eradicating that prejudice is difficult, but there are organizations who are very on top of things and who, uh, you know, who are really training their managers to see their workers in a three-dimensional way. So, you know, um, I know that you are somebody who you, of course, are a woman of color yourself. Mm -hmm. You, of course, uh, you are a founder of an organization. You have been able to hold high-level positions. Uh, I'm just curious uh, to hear mm -hmm. some of your perhaps personal reflections on 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 getting there because mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. i mean it couldn't have been easy mm. well i have uh, you know what i tell people when i talk about my uh my work life i say uh don't try this at home <laughs> i had kind of an unusual career path so i got a phd in organizational psychology many years ago at the university of michigan and i wasn't quite invested in that degree hmm. i you know this is many years ago before <laughs> there was a lot of effort around diversity equity and inclusion and i happened to like surveys i liked analyzing surveys and seeing what they you know told clients about what was going on and i pivoted to marketing research for about 10 years oh so i was a woman of color <laughs> in corporate management for all those years 
And it was really eye-opening. Mm. The level of prejudice that that I encountered was, um, uh, you know, was quite breathtaking. Uh-huh. I mean, certainly when I was in school, I went to a very liberal university, the University of Michigan. I personally just didn't feel that kind of bias as a student. But then working, and I was again in marketing research for several years, I could see the dynamics of like who was listened to, um, who was valued over someone else. Um, I think a classic example is I had um, a young white woman who worked for me, who I, I was doing her evaluation and I gave her just kind of an average on, I think it was interpersonal skills. And she was very, very upset about this because she said, I have really good interpersonal skills. <laughs> yeah, that, that convinced me, right? <laughs> right, yeah. I went over my head to my boss wow. who basically told me that I had to fix basically, um, you know, her what I had written down about her, her skills in this performance evaluation. And I had to be very strategic and thinking, okay, I don't want to completely give in and say, oh, yes, you've got great interpersonal skills. So I think what I did was I uh, lowered her performance on one uh, attribute, which was communication, saying, you know, you really do need to communicate more carefully with everyone that you work with, because I've heard, you know, X, Y, Z in terms of how you've communicated. So I lowered one attribute. And then to compromise, I raised the attribute on the interpersonal skills. I said, yeah, you know, informally, you've got great interpersonal skills, but you really do have to watch your communication with others in other departments. Mm. So to have to go through that kind of compromise yeah. is something that I did not see my white coworkers going through. Um, yeah. So just being silenced, um, you know, having to look for compromises and how I did my work and how I was judged. Right. Yeah. So I can see clearly there that there's a lot of emotional labor there and certainly just additional Mm -hmm. mental resources that Mm -hmm. over the length of career of a career, excuse me, could really Mm -hmm. add up to a lot of additional strain. So. Oh, but I just want to say something else about marketing. (laughs) I was really glad to have a marketing background because when it came time to release our you know, the first big project I did at Catalyst on women of color in corporate management. Yeah. There was another organization that seemed to be doing some similar work. And we kind of wanted to beat them to the punch. We wanted to release our study before they released theirs. And so even though it wasn't a great time of year to be releasing a report, I really pushed saying, you know, the first one in the marketplace is the one who owns the marketplace. So based on that advice, we did get the report out uh, very quickly and it got a lot of publicity and it really, I think, helped put Catalyst on the map as an organization that really cared and was was doing, you know, very generative things for women of color. Yeah, that's that's incredible. You know, we've had a couple other uh, comments come in again from uh, Christina Smith. So I think responding to uh, the personal story you were just sharing sounds very familiar uh, for those who are listening in. Christina Smith is also a member of the uh, diversity community and Mm -hmm. also a very highly accomplished uh, practitioner in her own Mm -hmm. right. And if you'd like to learn more about her, then you can check out our our last episode. Mm -hmm. Um, Another LinkedIn user writes, 
the tightrope we walk as yeah. women of color. Yeah, still, right? yeah, after all these years. And Tara Robertson, uh, a an advisor for Diverity, is chiming in here and just uh, you know singing your praises and support. It's so good you spoke up. <laughs> Wonderful. So um, to pivot back to our questions, what mm -hmm. impact can we expect to see if organizations are better able to support women and especially women of color at all levels in real ways, but mm -hmm. especially when it comes to reproductive health? Mm. Yeah, that's uh, that's the question that really is on a lot of people's minds right now, especially yeah. well concerning reproductive health with with what's happened with um, the overturn of, of Roe v. Wade. So um, I and, and many others are, are deeply concerned about the effects on women of color. And, of you know, that's one reason that I wanted to talk about the hourly workers um, at the beginning of our segment to, mm -hmm. for organizations not to discount um, the well-being of these workers. So in doing some research on uh, just the presence of women of color in uh, business and also looking at disparities in treatments regarding health, there has been an estimation that because of the overturn of, of Roe v. Wade, there's going to be a 33% higher death rate among Black women. Who 33%? Are 33% higher death rate uh, for pregnancies, uh, oh. given that they're not going to be allowed to terminate a pregnancy that they do not want. So that's, um, you know, looking again at, um, I just did some analyses um, with the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and there are approximately... 16 million women of color of reproductive age in the workforce in the United States. Wow. So when you think about that huge number, there are just so many deleterious effects um, that are going to, to happen. Um, and I know with uh, both Asian women and Hispanic women, just doing some research quickly, um, sometimes there's a language barrier that yeah. may keep them from accessing reproductive health services. And clearly it's going to be much harder to access those serv services, given that many states have enacted a total ban on, um, on, well, on abortion for any reason, even to, this sounds really terrible, but it seems that even to save the life of the mother, that there could be instances where certain procedures are withheld from women when they're pregnant because it might harm a fetus. Yeah, I've been seeing these headlines. And, you know, I, th I think it bears repeating here that all of this is going to be added on top of all the already existing and exacerbated inequities that women of color already face. Is that is that that's accurate? really true? And you know, I have wrote an op-ed and my, my editor is shopping it around. And I really, you know, I, I don't know if um, the major publications are going to print my op-ed, but I did at least want to share something I found out in, in doing this research. Yeah, please. And there, yeah, there was actually investigative reporting done by um, a magazine, uh, Business Insider. And it talked about how there was a disconnect between organizations that have really good diversity, equity, and inclusion programs on paper. And yet, 
a lot of these organizations have contributed millions of dollars to support trigger bans in states uh, about to overturn, uh, overturn Roe v. Wade. And mm. I was kind of shocked. I, yeah. I remember that it was like AT&T and other telecommunication organizations that had contributed money to these trigger bans. Now, these organizations have very good diversity, equity, and inclusion programs for their employees. And yet there's a contradiction there yeah. in terms of supporting this kind of um, initiative that, again, I, I'm just so struck by the, the data about the 33% higher death rate among African-American women. And, you know, going back to another story that was in the papers, uh, like, I guess, a couple of years ago now, there is such prejudice out there that you might remember Serena Williams when she was giving birth, she was having difficulties. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she's obviously very sharp, very smart. She knew what was going on with her and was trying to explain to the medical caretakers what they needed to do. And they dismissed her. Right. I mean, she really had to be extremely, um, you know, aggressive about saying, you know, this is what's going on with me and you need to do X, Y, Z. So unfortunately, prejudice is so, I think, almost hardwired hard into our society that it is obviously very difficult for people to break through that prejudice and, and see women of color as, you know, just full citizens, you know, who, who are, um, who really need all the rights that, that other people in the United States have. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, that's such a great example because that's somebody that so many look up to and mm -hmm. who is widely admired for their strength, their skill, their, you know, their thoughtfulness mm -hmm. and how they play the game. And yet they can mm -hmm. so easily be dismissed and reduced to, mm -hmm. uh, if we're being frank here, be dehumanized, right? In yeah, spite of yeah. all of that accomplishment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. when it really mattered you know the most was just able to be dehumanized categorized and dismissed mm -hmm. and that's how deeply prejudice runs in this country and quite frankly other other countries as well yeah yeah i'd like to pivot to our audience again so um you know what i'd like to get some insight from those tuning in right now is if you could jump ahead one year into the future what would you like to see organizations accomplish through better supporting the reproductive health of women especially women of color so i'll leave that question up here for a moment but to move on into our next question um so what are principled organizations doing right to support women of color post Roe v. Wade or after following the uh, SCOTUS decision? Oh, well, actually, there were several organizations that um, had been contributing money to help women needing abortions, for example, travel to other states that allow that legally now still allow abortions. So that's a that's a major contribution. And certainly, you know, I and, you know, and other women are grateful that so many companies are doing this. Got it. Yeah. So, hmm. 
if we're kind of thinking about the role of DEI practitioners in supporting mm -hmm. organizations in mm -hmm. staying the course on what they've committed to for DEI, but also what they've committed to doing for women, not just following the SCOTUS decision, but even before that, mm -hmm. um, you know, how, how can, in your mind, how can DEI practitioners have like a, a greater impact or mm -hmm. is that even a possibility? Oh, I think it's a possibility. I think that um, they need to have really hard conversations with business leaders about how sometimes some of their priorities or their practices may be working against the women of color within their organization. And I think a good example, again, is the number of, of organizations that contributed you know, millions of dollars to the trigger ban um, on abortions. Uh, I mean, clearly there was uh, some belief behind that. There, I'm sure that there's a reason that they wanted to do that. It could have been the personal beliefs of the very senior people within organizations, but it would be so good if um, business organizations could take just a deeper look at the entire lives of the women of color who are working in their organizations. And again, not just um, managerial and salaried workers, but the lower level workers who are going to be most vulnerable to something like the, um, you know, the overturn of Roe v. Wade. Gotcha. Yeah, you know, uh, as we were talking here, something that kind of crossed my mind is so much of the work that we're trying to advance with diversity, equity, and, and inclusion stems from um, people just kind of overlooking other people's humanity, right? So mm -hmm. getting too locked into yeah. what they're trying to accomplish organizationally or or what have you. But um, I don't know. It, mm. just kind of in the moment here, uh, in your mind, is it even possible for organizations to to operate in a mm -hmm. way where they are continually kind of thinking and centering people's humanity? Because the pattern seems mm -hmm. to be that indicating that that is not the default. Hmm. Well, actually, <laughs> that's a question that I'm going to try to answer. I'm actually giving, I'm uh, chairing a panel at the Academy of Management in about uh, three weeks. <laughs> It'll be in Seattle. Uh, August 9th is, is when we're doing our panel. And we're actually, you know, I've got a number of experts with me who are looking at how business organizations can more deeply look at systemic inequity. And ironically, uh, business organizations are basically the recipients of, of inequity with these enormous tax breaks that they mm. get um, mm. and just the millions of dollars that, uh, you know, very senior people in the organization are, are paid. So to recognize that there is a huge gap between the quality of life at the very senior levels and the quality of life at the very lower levels in organizations is kind of a big deal. Yeah. Um, and actually, I think we're probably going to quote from a researcher named Maura Barak, who talked about how business organizations can become just more humane in terms of just broadening their definition of who their stakeholders are, 
So traditionally, the major stakeholder for corporate organizations is uh, the shareholders. Yeah. You know, you want to increase what monies the shareholders get based on what your organization's doing. But in fact, what more Barack advocates is corporate organizations just expanding this list of stakeholders to include the community in which they're located and even the nation. Mm. And in that regard, I suspect that if uh, business organizations took this to heart, they probably wouldn't. <laughs> you know, want to contribute money to the trigger bans, um, you know, that happened after Roe v. Wade. Yeah, so interesting to hear you say that. You know, I remember in grad school learning, um, you know, when I was studying organizational conflict, mm -hmm. that organizations often, um, well, whether they realize it or not, they are embedded in the communities from which their uh, workforce is drawn. And right. so the conflict dynamics that people experience within those communities often get drawn into the organization simply mm -hmm. by people mm -hmm. being present there, right? You, yeah, interesting, yeah, interesting. Yeah, we, we have this idea that there's this division of our professional life and our personal life, but you know, if we're being real here, it's the same person sitting in the office mm -hmm. chair as sits down in the easy chair, and mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. that, that false separation does not serve us well. Mm -hmm. And also what's happened is that uh, more and more just the hours that people contribute to working, I mean, with the advent of the Internet, yeah. I mean, suddenly, you know, you may be on call throughout the weekend. <laughs> you know, it's very common to get a series of emails from coworkers, from bosses and, you know, time that should be spent just relaxing, recharging, being away from work isn't really part of the equation anymore. I mean, just subjectively having worked for so many years, I can see the differences in the hours that people expect um, to be working every work week, say 30 years ago versus now. And it's a huge mm. difference. Yeah. Huge difference. Yeah, that's a huge burden on, uh, again, mental health, which is um, another mm. hot topic right now and not mm -hmm. for no reason. Um, we've got another comment that's come in here, and I think this is in response to the audience question, which was uh, what they would like to see if we could uh, fast forward a year from now is advocating for systemic change while supporting individuals in their orgs. And I think that speaks very well to what you were saying earlier. Um, to kind of close out intentionally here, I wonder if we can drill down to maybe something a little bit concrete for those who have tuned in. And uh, what's on my mind is like, let's say that somebody is tuning in to watch us today and, you know, really processing the information in those great statistics that you've uh, sketched out for us. Uh, what is something that they can be doing themselves in their workplace, in their life to contribute to, you know, improving the, uh, the conditions for, for women everywhere? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think forming deeper relationships with others in the workplace, um, getting to know them as individuals and being sure that you're judging them objectively based on their talents. And also just being, well, less prejudiced <laughs> in terms of being able to see talent in people who look different from you. 
Yeah. And you know, I love that for you, it came down to relationships, you know? So mm -hmm. one way that I look at um, opportunities for equity, it often falls along um, developing our knowledge, developing our communication skills, or developing our relationships, and often some mixture of all three. Mm -hmm. um, we also know, and my background is in conflict resolution, that mm -hmm. when you have a relationship, then it's a lot easier to invest in navigating conflicts, small ones, large ones, large social conflicts, like the conflicts we're going through right now. But if we remain kind of numbers or faceless other people or job titles to others, then it's really hard for them to connect with our humanity. And, you know, mm -hmm. if we're not reaching the hearts and minds kind of space, then motivation can often be in short supply. Mm -hmm. uh, any final thoughts as we close out here, Dr. Giscom? Um, just that I hope that people are very conscious of seeing their coworkers, people who report to them, their bosses as three-dimensional human beings with lots of complexities and making an effort to get to know the people that they work with beyond just the tasks that they do within the workplace. Thank you. And thank you so much for your time. And I know this was oh, not you. an easy episode for us to put together, but <laughs> just really valuing your insight, your knowledge and your expertise. And uh, thank you so, so much for for everything. Oh, and thank you. Hey, again, Enrico here. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you like this episode, please like, share, and subscribe. It would really help us out. For comments, questions, suggestions, or thoughts, send us an email at info at diverity.com. That's info at D-I-V-E-R-I-T-Y dot com. For all our links, head to linktree slash diverity, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash D-I-V-E-R-I-T-Y. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of the DEI Is podcast with Erin Kate Escobar, an LA-based diverity network consultant who has worked in the field of promoting social justice and education for over a decade. Their focus being conflict transformation facilitation, nonviolent communication, mentorship, unlearning bias, identity exploration, and transformational leadership. We'll be talking about ERGs, that's employee resource groups, and their potential for transformational change, as well as some of the tools they can leverage to get there. That's coming your way on August 5th, or you can join our live recording on August 3rd at 12.30 p.m. ET or 9.30 a.m. PT by following us on LinkedIn, which you can find the link to on our link tree. See you soon.